Hello and welcome back to the Dynasty Crossroads. My name is Peter Howard at PA Howdy on Twitter and Threads and everywhere else that you need an app. This podcast is three days late this time, which is that's long even for me. Um, I threw myself into the research a bit more this week, uh, specifically for the fantasy subject, so don't panic. It's both my longest script for a while, but also the one I've left feeling like I don't establish as much information because this isn't a position or a subject that I talk about as much. And so some I went more broader spec with it. Um, yeah, I don't want to make the intro too long, but we're going to talk about the quarterback position in this one. I did want to mention before we get into it, another reason why I've been a little rushed this week uh, or at least uh, getting around to this podcast a little later than usual, is me and Zach Reed from the Dynasty Dummies podcast uh, recording some personalized podcasts with Rate My League, which is where people pay a fee, and me and Zach do a specific podcast about an hour long, depending on how big your league is, depends on how big the podcast has to be, and breaking down each individual team, ranking them, talking about their dynasty value and their redraft value and what we think of the teams. And it's been really fun to talk about specific leagues instead of talking about ADP and average all the time. Um, and I just wanted to let you all know, I put a video up on YouTube. There is numerous tweets out there about what it is with sample episodes and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so I want to let you all know that we're doing that. Uh, again, check out those sources if you want to, or the link in the description, I assume. But for now, let's finally get back to grinding out weird podcasts that try and combine my love of both history and fantasy football at the same time and talk about establishing expectations for the quarterback position and some actionable takeaways about the way the position develops in the NFL for fantasy. Let's do it. Do you have the time to listen to me grind? Take down the film watchers and learn some at once. Ah, the preamble, where I endeavor to convince you that one, I'm more interesting than I actually am, and B, that history or any kind of systematic inquiry is applicable to fantasy football, and C, that this isn't just an excuse to merge my interests into one one podcast. Still, when I see Dave Wright or FF Spaceman to you on Twitter refer to this podcast and that he's busy listening to me talk about ancient Rome in order to learn about fantasy football, kind of makes me feel like it's all worthwhile, and I really enjoy that <laughs> that reference and the others I see these days. I spent a lot more time looking at the fantasy research this week, afraid mostly because it's not one I talk about a lot or investigate, especially as much as often recently because of what I have learned or started to learn about the position over the last few years. So I had to do a little bit more of the background fact-checking because it wasn't off the top of my head as much. So to shortcut this part of it, I'm going to reread or I'm going to read a rewritten version of my conclusion to my bachelor's dissertation. I promise I made it better than that sounds, though, because stuffy, very smart professors don't really value rhetorical flair or stating certainty in a fun manner. Or, to put it another way, they didn't like me talking in fake what is fake and what is real terms. Instead, they wanted 
me to talk about what is good context and what is bad context or reliable or reasonable context. I also think it shows a consistent trend in how I think and approach establishing expectations and investigating claims. And also because they wouldn't let me be forceful and stuff. And I still feel the desire to put it out there in the world. So I guess we need a segue from this to that, much like those trying to convince you of the validity of certain quarterback takes before a season begins, I spent many a confused year learning about ancient Greece, wondering why no one was pointing out that the background story that everything was told on top of was no closer was a lot closer to fiction than it was history. When I went to university, I'd never studied ancient history before. I'd mostly done modern history, and so I shouldn't have done that, by the way. You're meant to have some level of background in the subject by the time you get to university in England, but that's just not my way. So when I finally was allowed the freedom to choose a subject of my own and go academically hog-wild by discussing a subject I wanted to with a question I designed, I chose the obvious. I wanted to prove that the center and often foundation of our framing of the majority of the ancient world, especially in Greece, the Trojan War, its heroes and its descendants, had more akin, more akin with King Arthur than King Henry VIII. And just to be clear, because I'm honestly not sure how many people would get that reference at this point in the modern world, King Arthur never existed, but King Henry VIII strange as it seems, did. I wanted to prove the, tr- tr- the Trojan War was fake. But here's a closer version to what I had in mind when I first set out to write it. In conclusion, and realize I don't want you to run, I don't want to run through the etymology or the development of our understanding of these stories or where they came from or what linear A and linear B script uh, is and how difficult it is to translate either because... Because, again, it was a 10,000-word dissertation, uh, which wasn't... It's not hard. You'd get it if you read it, but we're we're doing a 30-minute podcast here, right? So we're just starting out with a conclusion. The present state of evidence would suggest that there is no single context for a Trojan War, but numerous. What's more, there also seems to be an inherently subjective nature to the search for a Trojan War, where the search itself has and continues to influence many skilled historians' interpretation of the evidence itself. This has come to a point where the scope of what it is and what it is not possible to accept as a definition for a Trojan War could even look like has spiraled into a barely recognizable situation. The Iliad, the birth of the search, offered the Humeric geography used somewhat unbelievably by the perspective of time and distance, to follow seemingly laughingly plausible geographic references from copies of copies of ancient texts referencing originals that that have never been seen by any of these scholars, all presumably referencing back to a long-held oral tradition told and retold for entertainment by a culture which, like many, defined and redefined itself through these stories. Schliemann's Troy, Schliemann uh, was the archaeologist who discovered the site that's currently now thought to be Troy, and he himself is a wild example of archaeology. I mean, it was archaeology at a certain period, but even at the time, he was a little reckless, uh, to the point that the site we're now investigating, he, we now think he dug right through the middle of the layer that actually occupies the space where a Trojan War might have happened because, again, archaeology back in the day was developing 
and just hammering right through the ground to the bottom layer was his technique, which is just like destroying most of the history to try and get to the bottom layer, which, you know, even at the time, probably should have known the bottom layer is going to be like the early sediment, the least likely to hold the most significant historical evidence. But anyway, I'm getting too far into it here. Yeah, he destroyed the site, at least a significant portion of the significant area, but still. Where was I? Sleeman's Troy, as it is, because it can hardly be called Homer's Troy, provides interesting and compelling evidence to suggest a link between the place name Willusa or the Homeric Troy. Not to mention it also discovered a previously unfound area of Anatolian history and the ancient world itself. But while the association of Sleeman's Troy with Willusa appears to be plausible... The, identifica the identification of Ahiawa with the Greek kingdom, that's supposed to be the Greeks fighting Willusa and therefore the context of the Trojan War, seems more tenuous. So we either have a Trojan War with no Greeks or no Greeks in the place where we think a Trojan War should have happened. Even if that was overlooked, such an association would imply that a major confrontation between the two would have been more a progression of aggressive interaction over time, based on what we know of these two places in the Anatolian history. And Anatolia, by the way, is Turkey, if you need the Bond Day reference. And was once intervened in by the Anatolian state, which was the big boy on the block power-wise at the time, or the presumed time. Don't even get me started on the timeline. A larger authority that is in no way ever suggested, referenced, or hinted at in any of the long-distant memories of the original story that has fallen to us through this large fog of time. All told, claims and the chains of logic stood next to each other in the clear light of trying to find a similar context instead of joining dots together to find justification for a conclusion that has already been held at the outset, the abundance of context for any ancient tradi tradition that could be termed a Trojan War itself suggests that there is no suggestion for any belief in the Trojan War as a historical event. Well, that would have been my conclusion if I was allowed to say things in a way that, you know, technically is a little too strong to be true. But whether it's the fall of Russell Wilson in 2022 or the dubious completion percentages of Andrew Luck early in his career in the NFL, in his ill-fated career, the emergence of Geno Smith in Seattle in 2022 or Ryan Tannehill before that in Tennessee, or how about the emergence of Trevor Lawrence last year in 2022, there's so much that is so certain and falls down so often that the evidence of what a good QB is and isn't begins to look dubious as well. The interrelationship between receiver and passer is uncertain. The, the recent emergence of rushing quarterbacks has shown us wild changes in completion percentages from one year to the next. And the rate of change of passing efficiency over time is hard to factor into that with so few examples relative to the recent emergence of rushing quarterbacks. All in all, I think we need a refresher on, at least, what is and can be confirmed and can't be confirmed, and how the position develops, works, and should be expected to produce over time right now in fantasy. So let's dig in and see if we can't start our own Homeric heroic hymn of the QB position. Top 12 quarterbacks repeat at the second highest rate of any in fantasy, and the difference is marginal between the number one and the number two ranked position. Along with tight end, both the quarterback position repeats about 50% of the time inside the top 12. 
In other words, 50% of the top 12 players in any given year are repeating players from the previous season. Wide receiver and running back, for perspective, repeat about 40% of the time inside the top 12. And in real terms, the difference between the two is about one more or one less player inside the top 12 who's repeating from the previous season in that they finished top 12 last year and they're going to finish top 12 the next year. QB also has the longest arc in that a longest or longest stretch of years pass between the periods of high repeat years and low repeat years. As you might expect, the inverse is true at breakouts. Both tight end and quarterback have the lowest breakout rates inside the top 12 accounting for the smallest number of players in any given season in that group. In other words, two or three players in any given season are new or emerging into the top 12 for the first time in a given average year using averages since 2008. It also has the lowest return rate of any position, including tight end. In general, the return rate is the smallest and least significant group of any position, on average, between 15% and 20% of the top 12 being returning players. They weren't top 12 last year, but they have been before, and they are currently finishing inside the top 12. That's what a returning player is. Still, it does have the advantage of pushing the vet group, the return rate that is, over the 60% mark inside the top 12 every year. So 60% or more of players finishing inside the top 12 have finished inside the top 12 before, and a small margin of those didn't the previous year, but they have done at some point. 60% to 40% is the typical division inside the top 12. In general, while we have seen a relatively high breakout rate at quarterback of late, something I've talked about ad nauseum, it's not so drastically different that it spells doom for 2023. It's just a consistently high average over the last few years. And it's most significant in that the trend suggests that the returns were below average last year in 2022, with only 8% being returning players last year. That's one player, Jared Goff, returned to the top 12 in overall points in 2022, something he lasted in 2018. So those are some expectations or some general understandings of how players break out or who's finishing inside the top 12. But what is the quarterback position for fantasy right now? Let's get an idea of how the position works. Like with most positions, only a very few players at the top of the ranks provide a positional advantage but the rate of points per game decline is smaller. So as not to cover old late round QB ground, the quickest way I can think of explaining that for this overview is that quarterbacks ranked 6 to 12 score about 14% less in points per game than QBs ranked 1 to 5. And QBs 13 to 24 score 20 to 25% less in points per game than QBs finishing 1 to 5 since 2008. Whereas if you compare that to running back, the difference between 6 to 12 compared to running backs 1 to 5 is around 22%. And the difference between running backs ranked 13 to 24 versus 1 to 5 is 35%. So there's like 10% additional points per game loss at the quarterback, at the running back position versus the quarterback position. At least I thought it was quick way of explaining that. QB averages longer careers and longer prime windows, prime career windows. Over the last few years, a trend in rushing QB has developed to provide additional floor or ceiling, depending on the player or how you like to view that, 
Hello, Zach Reed from the Dynasty Dummies podcast, leading to an advantage that is often referred to as the Konami code because Rich Harbaugh, he was the first one to point it out and uh, that I know of, and he termed it that. In other words, there was underrated upside in quarterbacks that ran the ball relative to ADP. However, since the development of these tactics, ADP has mostly adjusted for the, both the potential of late-round quarterback drafting and also that the league has shifted more towards exploiting the rushing potential of quarterbacks in a real NFL sense. So a quick way of seeing that, the real NFL effect, is that between 2008 and 2012, top five quarterbacks averaged about 8% of their points per game coming from the rushing game. Between 2018 and 2022, top five QBs average about 15% of their points from the rushing game. This puts it in a weird position relative to the other positions as it scores more like a wide receiver in terms of the decline of points per game through the ranks is slower, but it also has more concrete value trends like tight end with similar breakout arcs and returning players as a tight end position. In that player's breakout, they are more likely to have a decade-long points or positional advantage career before fading out, and they also repeat at a relatively high rate. So, less points per game advantage for the majority, but in Dynasty, that longevity and that certainty of that longevity as well relative to other positions is highly valuable. Lately, with the explosion of QB talent recently to enter the league, some have missed that the longer arc of QBs means we shouldn't expect a consistent stream of new ones year over year. Even if each draft class on average produces two players who have at least one top 12 season, like Jamison Winston did that once as well, not all of them can be Patrick Mahomes, even if two every draft class on average are producing at least one top 12 season. So the studs that we have are probably going to be the studs we're going to have for quite a while. Finally, and this can't be understated, I don't think the majority of degenerates have accepted or noticed that this is in fact for fantasy the best scoring QB era for as long as has been fantasy football. We are seeing higher points per game, more rushing QBs, more pass-friendly league offenses, and also a group of young good players at a position more likely to produce those decades worth of repeating seasons with lower injury risk than other positions. In Dynasty, the main difference is that QB value in Superflex is still slightly undervalued by ADP, and the value of players almost immediately rises the minute the last few are drafted in startups. We've seen a drop in the tendency for ADP to overvalue young quarterbacks for the sake of it in their sophomore season, a trend I was sad to see go, to be honest. What's up, Carson Wentz? However, there is still largely more hope for fantasy players investing in younger quarterbacks for the potential of breakouts. Still too much hope. Finally, the positional advantage of those few QBs who have the positional advantage is still underrated in one QB league. So what's being debated about quarterbacks right now and heading into 2023? I haven't paid much attention to the QB debates for a while. I don't find a lot of QB data or analysis overly useful. Um, and I don't think I have an edge in outside of the basics I just described. I haven't found a large reason to investigate player evaluation for the position because, like tight end, the samples are so small, I tend to think most things that are interesting are hard to eke actionable value out of. 
The moment Josh Allen broke all historical examples of one of the most consistent trends ever and turned out not just to be good, but to be great. The bloom for data fell off the rose for me in terms of the quarterback position. It wasn't the only straw, but it was one of the last ones. Now, many may feel that that was a victory, but I don't understand that way of thinking. It essentially proves that no one was right because no one can be right because there is nothing that works even close to a consistent rate even with max potential and P-scores available. This is evidenced by the fact that that quarterback, Josh Allen, can now be used to defend any argument for any player heading into any season, invoking his name like some sort of dystopian version of Beetlejuice, but for bad fantasy players. Josh Allen did it, so it's possible. However, I do know a lot is still made about completion percentages and accuracy, and Justin Fields' ceiling and floor moving forward after his 2022 breakout year. So without hoping to prescribe much in the way of definite player evaluations, let's take a look at it. Completion percentage. How does that work? Accuracy is the best descriptive difference between the skill of individual players. I think that's a fairly good way of looking at the quarterback position. But like most inherently efficiency-based orientations, efficiency-based stats, it's prone to exaggeration in terms of fantasy actionable ideas. In general, the average player in the top 24 since 2008, if they pass the ball more than 300 times in both seasons, sees no change in their completion percentage. It's sticky and stable with barely a 0.5% change in completion percentage from one year to the next for top 24 quarterbacks. However, if we isolate those with a completion percentage below 60%, we find the average from year 1 to year 2, any two random years, isn't 0.5%, it's 3.4% the following season. An improvement. If we isolate those averaging 63% or lower, we find the change is 2.6%, significantly higher than the 0.5% of the group. The reason is self-explanatory. Those with higher efficiencies in the completion percentage for one season are more likely to see a drop in that extreme exaggerated efficiency the following season. And those with extreme or below average completion percentages are more likely to improve the following season. The relationship between either change to their fantasy result, honestly, looks suspect and highly unrelated in practice. Most who break out into the top 12 see a reduction in their completion percentage the following year, even if they maintain a top 12 rank and repeat the next year. Joe Burrow, for example, broke out to the top 12 in 2021. He had a 70% completion percentage that year, but fell off, quote-unquote, the following year with only a, only a 69% completion percentage, still above average in 2022, and he maintained a top 12 rank, obviously. Jalen Hurts, who also broke out in 2021, had a completion percentage of 62%, below average, but improved in 2022 with a completion percentage of 67% the following year, and again maintained a top 12 rank, in fact broke out to a higher level. Both maintained a top 12 rank in 2022, neatly demonstrating both of those trends that I was talking about, where lower efficiency quarterbacks who finish in the top 12 are more likely to increase in completion percentage, and higher efficiency quarterbacks are more likely to decrease in that efficiency the following season, even if both maintain a top 12 rank. This conversation is largely academic in terms of Justin Fields, who broke out into the top 12 last year. 
and all the positive ramifications of having a productive season last year that is attributed currently to Trevor Lawrence should, rightly, be allowed to Justin Fields. Although Lawrence finishing inside the top five might be another thing altogether. The fact that Fields had the single highest percentage of his fantasy points in the rushing game, 39% of his points per game came from the rushing side of his game, the second highest since 2008 was Josh Allen in 2018, and he had 37% of his points coming from the rushing game. The third was Cam Newton in 2020, 35% of his points came from the rushing game. And the fourth was Jalen Hurts in 2021, who had, again, 39%, but the decimal was slightly lower, of his points coming from the rushing game. I don't think Fields' high rushing usage is a reason to suspect he can't sustain production necessarily, I don't think it factors into expectations for overall fantasy ranks, given the unreliability of projecting this forward. So, what do players who improve the next year look like, or what do they do? Essentially, production, cha production changes seem tied to relative volume increases and situational improvement. In my opinion, touchdown performance creates variance here too, to be fair. For example, top 24 QBs who improve their position rank the following season. So not into a particular rank, but just finish at a higher rank the following year. They average about 1.3% higher completion percentages, 51 pass attempts more in the season that they improve the following season, which only works out to a 0.9% pass attempts per game. But they did see a 2% increase in the conversion percentage, which is how much of their air yards is being converted into receiving yards or passing yards. That's what conversion percentage is. They see a, a not, minus 0 0.1 air yards per attempt change, so nothing. And a minus 10 yards per touchdown change. That means they're getting more efficient. They're scoring a touchdown 10 fewer yards a time. So fewer yards, 10 fewer yards have to be scored before they complete a touchdown or rush for a touchdown for that matter. They also saw a negligible change in their interception percentage, 0.3%, minus 0.3% change in their improving year, which is small, but they do get slightly better in interceptions, I guess, but that's more efficiency as well. In the rushing game, for those who improve the following year, and to be fair, for those that it matters to, there's only like 12 players in our sample who have 20% of their points coming from the rushing game. Um, but for those players, they saw an increase of 14 rushing attempts on average, which again is only like 0.4 rushing attempts per game. Um, but they did see a large touchdown efficiency shift, minus 22 yards per touchdown. So again, they're scoring a touchdown more frequently relative to how many yards they're scoring, 22 yards more frequently. They also see a more and more drastic increase in their conversion percentage, 3.7% higher in the year they're improved versus the year before that. And again, the interception change for rushing quarterbacks is relatively small. They improved by about 0.6%, almost marginal on average when looking at the entire group of players who improved, or 12 that were primarily rushing QBs. If we take a glance over at the dream group, however, those who elevate into the top five when they were finished outside the top five the year before, now, to be clear, this isn't what I determine as a breakout. It's not the first year they finish in the top five, just the year before they weren't in the top five and the following year they were in the top five. What change to their stats happened on average? Well, we largely see the same change, although 
it's more, it's higher, to be honest. They see a 2% change in their completion percentage in that they completed passes 2% more than they did the previous year. 111 pass attempts more in their second season when they jump into the top five on average, which is 2.6 more a game. An increase in 16 rushing attempts on the season, but only a 0.6 rushing attempts per game improvement. They saw a drastic and again significant 3.3% increase in their conversion percentage. And again, a significant change in their touchdown efficiency, with a touchdown being scored 17.9 yards fewer per touchdown. In terms of breakouts, so if you look at players who are actually finishing in the top five for the first time, there are 19 players who have done that, drafted since 2008. Notably, top five breakouts are an exception to the breakout groups in the top 12 and the top 24. Most breakout groups break in to that level of production or that rank or that level of finishing inside fantasy ranks straight away. They don't normally build up to it. There's normally a top 36 season where they played some in the rookie year or the sophomore year when they were finally healthy. And then they break out at level is a phrase I usually use. So they're going to break out into the top 12 soon or relatively soon. It normally happens straight away. The opposite side of that is someone like Amari Cooper, who has a little bit of a delayed top 12 breakout. It only happened last year. And that's the concern I have with Chris Olave right now. He had his full role year one and broke out into the top 24. Same with Garrett Wilson. So you're betting on situational improvements. And it's much easier to make the case that one player's situation is going to improve than the other because of the quarterback change. Whereas in the top five, it works slightly differently. Most who finish in the top five actually break out into the top 12 first. So it's slightly different than the other group. Since 2008, 68% of top five seasons are vet producers, players who have finished inside the top 12 before. Whereas only 32% break out into the top five for the first time since 2008 without having broken out into the top 12 before. This bodes well for Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray and Dak Prescott, who finished outside the top 12 last year, but have had top five seasons previously earlier in their careers. But this is also where we run into a QB problem. Some of the vet quarterbacks since 2008 were drafted before my data even starts. So identifying when they broke out, when they're repeating and when they're returning is essentially left to a mystery. But I do know that the majority had a top 12 or top 5 season for most of the years they were finishing in the top 5. Because, I mean, the names are Brady, Breeze, and Manning. I'm pretty sure they mostly had finished inside the top 12 before, no matter when that exact breakout happened. But we can focus on breakouts that are drafted since 2008 and fact check it. And we still see that top 5 vets favor breakouts more than other positions. Of the 19 quarterbacks drafted since 2008, 7 of those 19 were top 12 breakouts at the same time, 36% of the group. 12 of the 19 vet, 12 of the 19, however, were veteran producers. They'd finished in the top 12 before. That's 63% of the group. This is syncing up remarkably well to the other group we just talked about, which was just all quarterbacks. Two were returns. That was Matt Ryan in 2016 and Jameis Winston in 2019. That's just 10% of the group. So I actually think this is a fair understanding of what the top five look like. 63%, they're players who have at least done it before and most are repeating from the previous year. Whereas a, very, a smaller or only 36% of top five breakouts 
are breaking into the top five for the first time. So if you're looking for a top five quarterback, you're mostly looking for players who have done it before. And when a player does it, like Trevor Lawrence last year, that means they're suddenly in this rarefied air of players who could be more likely to repeat inside the top five at some point next year or further into their career. So I think repeats are much more likely than returns, but we do see years like, and this is worth pointing out, that in 2018 and 2015, there were four returns and one breakout. So while most years we see mostly repeating players, and that's particularly true at quarterback in the top five, some years you get one breakout and four returning players. Highly unusual, but it's not like seasons like that don't occur. And as a reminder, I generally think that we are entering a season where we should expect more returns than usual and less breakouts than usual. Marginally, marginally less breakouts in general. So in other words, my conclusions here, just to sum it up, because I know repeat, return and breakout, we can get lost in the reads. What I'm essentially saying is it's a really good year to like Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray and Dak Prescott, Aaron Rodgers and Justin Herbert. They didn't finish inside the top five or even the top 12 in some cases last year, but they've all done it before. They're all early. They're all well-proven as solid producers. And we're entering a season where those are the type of players we more often see or should expect to more often see return to previous levels of production. And I just threw Justin Herbert in there just because anyone not valuing him the exact same way you value Joe Burrow seems crazy to me. But... Moving away from the top five, because it's a very small target, and back out to the top 12, because we like starters too, looking at 2023, this is what you should broadly expect. The top 12 should be 36% breakouts. So three, two or three players will be finishing inside the top 12 for the first time next year. That's the average expectation. So you could look at Mac Jones or Tua Tonga Vailoa, or Kenny Pickett, I guess. These are players who haven't finished inside the top 12 before. And there's a 36% of the top 12. That's kind of the group they're aiming for. Or you could argue the rookies. 63% are repeats into the top 12. So again, even in the top 12, you're mostly focusing players who've been there before. And that's really good news for Justin Fields, who just finished inside the top 12. And Daniel Jones, who just finished inside the top 12. Juno Smith, who just finished inside the top 12. And even Jared Goff, who's been there more than once. Not that you're excited about Jared Goff. Only 10% of the top 12 are returning players. So Carr, Tannehill, and Wentz have a rougher time of getting back into the top 12 as returning players. But again, we should probably be more optimistic about returning players into the top 12 just because of where the trends are at right now. Now, because I know I can get really convoluted and in the weeds when talking about this stuff, I thought I'd do a section here that's just actionable takeaways or what I'm taking away from the research I've done. And I'm going to post on Twitter and on Patreon the, the, the sample that I created to do some of this research because you might be you might find it interesting to dig through yourself. It's just a selection of data from the main NFL database, but why not? Another sheet. 
So, uh, actionable takeaways. To be clear, players have their own averages, like I was talking about the average of groups there, not the average of players. Some players have higher averages. Some players genuinely average higher completion percentages. That is true. Some are better at it than others. But by looking at the groups this way, and the samples of improving players versus types of players who didn't improve or finish in certain position ranks, I think we can establish an understanding of how things change with the prerequisite sample selection without the prerequisite sample selection of trying to find what we want to see getting in the way. Not go looking for a Trojan War and then find it. But there are some broad conclusions I'd add to the brief description I laid out at the very beginning. Number one, the further a player is into their career at the quarterback position without breaking into a certain position rank, the less likely they are to do it. That's broadly true of other positions as well. But those who have done it before are always, always have even more elevated chances of doing it again at quarterback. And some rough numbers on that, 78% of top 5 breakouts have happened by year 4, 70% of top 12 breakouts have happened by year 3, and 84% of top 24 breakouts have happened by year 2. And remember that players typically break out at level. So if you don't break out into the top 24 by year 2, you're getting less likely to do it. If you don't get into the top 12 by year 3, you're looking less likely to do it. And if you haven't hit the top 4 by year 4, the year Justin Fields is entering, I'm pretty sure then you're suddenly less likely to do it at quarterback. My second takeaway is that the majority to hit the top five have in fact been in the top 12 before at least. And remember that's the exception I was trying to describe. If they're going to break out into the top five, the better bet is the one who's finished inside the top 12 before. That's not true of other breakout groups at any position. Normally, the player who hasn't yet done it has a slight edge because they're slightly more common. So I think that's interesting about that highest upside group, the top five group. They've mostly finished inside the top 12 before they finish in the top five. Again, that's really good news for Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence who just did that. Relative to the whole group of those who improve, the rate air yards are converted into receiving yards seems to be the trick in where most of the productions come from. Volume has a slight uptick as well, so looking for players who are more likely to see more volume, either in rushing but mostly in passing, as well as reasons to suspect higher touchdown efficiency, whatever that could be, but I think that comes back down to coaching, team staff, speculations and improvements on the depth chart, good rookie draft classes, sophomores who had good rookie seasons, all of those would be positive reasons to expect improvement for a quarterback, no matter what the relationship between quarterback and the receiver and their effect on each other in terms of success is. The completion percentage seems to be more related to the pitch and yaw or troughs and peaks of efficiency and regression, and I don't think it's a particularly good way of speculating what a player might or might not do the following season or in their career. In other words, I think speculating on improvements to the coaching staff and receiving core are warranted, even if they are mostly and most of the time narratives largely driving clicks instead of results. But I think the breakout arcs of wide receivers and tight ends and even quarterbacks can create better expectations for looking for players who might have that higher ceiling. My fourth takeaway is both completion percentage and conversion percentage are highly interrelated to the situation in the depth chart, coaching scheme, and probably hip swivel for all I know, which all build into exactly what makes quarterback stats suck and a little more tricky 
to analyze and frustrating to provide actionable information on. Just a note here, this was a difficult section to write and I wanted to say it. Fifth takeaway. In 2023, let's sum it all up to who are you saying you like, like who are the names? In 2023, I like Dak Prescott a lot. I like him more than Tua Tonga Vailoa because where Tua Tonga Vailoa is at in his career, top 12 is more likely than top five at this point for his future high upside expectations. Whereas Dak, at a similar value, while older, has finished inside the top five before, which means he has an increased rate at the relative points in their career to actually do it again at some point. And I think both of their careers have many years left, but I don't think youth itself is a value or something that we should value. So Tua being earlier in his career doesn't add more points per game expectations, and both are going to be playing for a significant enough time with decent security in their jobs, their job security, that I really don't think Tua of a deck makes sense to me. In general, both because of the position and the trends we've talked about, I think Lawrence and Field both look good for the future because of, but because people value youth, I don't see a big reason to chase it right now. Maybe Lawrence, because he finished in the top five technically overall last year, and that creates puts him in that group of players. But why, when I can look for similar trades on Justin Herbert or Lamar Jackson or a discounted Kyler Murray right now, or even, again, if you want the Darren Waller play of quarterback right now, the upside with discounted value because age and it's been a minute, it's Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, and Aaron Rodgers sitting there for a lot less. So I don't see a lot of reason to chase Fields and Lawrence when I can go up and get, well, the two that I don't even have to mention because everyone already knows they're good, Allen and Mahomes for relatively little difference in trade value right now, or in the same value of tier, Herbert and Dak and, and, and Lamar and Kyler Murray all have relatively similar expectations based on what they've done and positional trends and the whole podcast here for relatively similar value and you don't have to buy into the hype or the person on the roster might now have a suddenly elevated expectation of them or I can go for the discounted Dak, Wilson and Rogers. I don't see a lot of reason to chase Fields and Lawrence although I'm perfectly fine with their ADPs elevating all, all the way up. Let's send them all the way up to, to that group. In other words, I don't see a reason to force it when I expect all to be playing for the next two or three years, and ADP has mostly adjusted for shifting, for rushing upside in the late round quarterback strap, I don't think ADP is going to mislead us too badly here, or reason to expect more than ADP already currently is. Again, youth itself is not something I value. You just want players with good, valuable career arcs early as possible so that you have the most number of years with that points per game and trade value, but I don't think that's what we're looking at. That's about it. Those are my five actionable takeaways. And as clearly as I can say the way I'm seeing the landscape and the quarterbacks I find really interesting right now at ADP and because of their potential heading into 2023. I'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to try out a podcast, trying to do something different. It's not that different to just occasionally mention the ancient world, but yeah, I find it fun. If you'd also be so kind as to consider checking out Zach Reed and my recent venture to make some personalized podcasts for your league, 
through Rate My League podcast, I'd appreciate it. We've sold nearly all of the 15-episode run we're doing, but we still have a few left. I'd really like to sell them out because I really do enjoy getting a chance to talk about specific leagues and teams, like do this or this is good and this is bad, instead of talking about on average and ADP, which doesn't apply to every team or anyone or everyone that might hear what I'm trying to put out there. And um, There is a fee, just to be clear, depending on the size of your league is what the fee is. Um, but it also helps me and Zach keep grinding, to be fair. And um, we really do try and put the effort in to make every episode as worth it in entertainment and information at the same time. Um, but you can check out the details on the YouTube video I made or the Twitter threads that I can link you to if you check them out or check me out on Twitter. Um, and there are also some sample episodes posted there, so you, you know what, you can see that I'm not lying. We're putting the effort in, and we're, we're doing a pretty good job with them, I feel like. But besides that, once again, I want to thank you for those who continue to reach out when I'm doing some slightly offbeat things with these podcast episodes lately. Um, hearing from you all really does mean the world to me, and thank you very much. Um, again, as always, if you're interested in my ranks, articles, any of my data, or tables, or bleh, anything, uh, it can be found on Patreon, or follow my Linktree links, which is Linktree backslash PA Howdy. Um, it's in my bio on Twitter as well. Apart from that, thanks very much for checking out the podcast. Hopefully I got it down to 30 minutes or so, so it wasn't too long. Really appreciate you, and I'll see you again next week, which is actually just in a couple days, because I'm so late, with an interview podcast gonna be a good one i think you'll like it thanks very much yeah chicken a crow chicken a crow crossing the road go clicking a poll twitter is gold player unfold so jake on the table and they on the play so pete enumerates the plays are analytical picking my nose don't really know if i like that picking their brains got their lanes but i like that picking these guys all of these times all of these nice stats Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight Back and forth, there is no order They disorder more and more Because the players ain't no older They some hoarders or some mortars Dropping bombs without no borders They got that eye like mortar Peak grinding numbers like molars I don't know anymore, I am at a crossroads Chicken a crow, chicken a crow Crossing the road, go Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold Player unfold, so Jake on the table and they on the play, so Pete enumerates the plays are analytical Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, play run fold, so Jake on the table and they on the play, so Pete enumerates the plays are analytical